The following message was recorded at Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. It sounds a little strange. Um, I thought it sounded a little strange. It feels a little strange. Um, Pastor talked about Good Friday and how could we call a day like this good? And the Lord put on my heart, He can make things good that we don't look at as good. We don't often look at these things as good. We don't look at Mourning is good. We don't look at sorrow as good. We don't look at grief as good. We don't look at pain or agony as good. But God can bring something good out of it. God can paint beauty from the ashes. So I say to you, good morning. And with that, um, I want to open my time with you all in prayer. We love you, Lord. We come before you today in observance of your life and your death as a real person, not some abstract idea or some faraway entity, but you were a real person. You existed in history. There are real testimonials of who you were and what you did on on this planet. And we come here to observe you, to honor you, to celebrate you, but also to mourn you, to grieve for you, to recognize and identify with sorrow within our hearts, to realize our need for a greater love, for your love, our need for a savior, to really grapple with this idea of what it means to be saved and to receive salvation and what that cost and what you paid for it. And then we invite healing because we can't skip the grief. We can't skip the sorrow. We can't skip Good Friday on our way to Easter. So we need to reflect in this moment, find ourselves with you in this moment. Help us to invite in healing. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. These are the words of Jesus. These are the words of the person that we're coming here today to to mourn. Um, And he's saying it's blessed to mourn. Um, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. God has a heart for our sorrow and our struggle in the words of the psalmist. So I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask some questions and I'm going to use some, some symbols. Um, Jesus uses a lot of symbols and I'm going to ask us some questions to help us wrestle with, with this idea. And I mean, some of the first things I just want to ask just to make this real for y'all right off the bat. Um, is anybody in here hurting or grieving something or feeling sorrow about something? Maybe we've tucked it away deep in our heart somewhere. Maybe we don't even know how to express it, but we maybe maybe we just move on with our day and feel like I got to get my stuff done. I got to do what I have to do. I got to go to work. I got to put on a happy face so that I don't make people around me down. And we're holding on to something. Maybe we've been holding on to it for years. Maybe our whole lives. Maybe as long as we can remember. Um, and I'm I'm certain there are people among us who feel that way. I feel that way. Um, the Lord has used this to um, speak to me as well. And uh, um, grappling with, with pain, God is showing us that... Uh, He's using all of it. So I'm going to ask why. Why do we why do we feel this way? But also how, how did God show us that he has a heart to heal this, to walk us through this, that he doesn't just leave us in these places? Um, why are we here to celebrate the person, Jesus Christ? 
We have an idea of who God is. We can have this idea, I believe in God, but the person of Jesus Christ, the person who walked this earth, the person who is testified to having done miracles on this planet, to heal the sick, cure the blind, make the lame walk, resurrect the dead, bless his enemies, and ultimately face a death that he didn't deserve. Why do we come and remember him? Why do we remind ourselves of what he went through? Why do we grapple with this? Why do we why do we wrestle? Why do we put this in front of ourselves? Well, I think to understand this, we also have to understand why Jesus came in the first place. And he tells us in John, in John, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. So Jesus is telling us straight up, he came, his very existence, if God is coming in the flesh, his very existence implies a purpose. God is not going to manifest himself in the flesh on purpose. If if God is in heaven, why why should he ever leave? Why would he why would he ever leave? Why would he ever bring himself to mankind's level, especially mankind that has chosen another way, chosen to turn his back on God and do things his own way? Why why would why would God come here? And he's telling us he's doing the will of his father. This is the will of the father. Jesus's life and his ministry and his death it's the will of the Father. John sixteen seven. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. Jesus knows there's a bigger picture. And he knows when we're grieving that we need comfort. And I just want to acknowledge that we have a Comforter with us here today. And he is with us observing observing this with us. I'm going to use a few symbols to talk about what we're processing here. And one of the first symbols that we're going to talk about is cost. Our actions have a cost. Our actions have consequence. When we choose to turn away from God, when we choose to do things our own way, when we choose to act in selfishness, when we choose survival and protecting ourselves, our actions have a cost. Our actions have a consequence. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we have a contrast here, and we're going to see a lot of that and what we're going over, contrast. On one hand, we have wages. Wages sounds like what you, you go to work, you, you clock in, you, you, do, you work hard, and you get a wage. And in Scripture, we see that wage in, in the sin context, if we're, if we're using an economy, if we're using a this-for-that system, the wages of sin is death. And then we see the contrast with the gift of God. It's much more humbling to humble ourselves to receive a gift, especially when we know or feel we don't deserve it. We're confronted with the idea that we didn't do anything to earn it or didn't do anything to deserve it, especially when we may have even spat in the face of it a few times. James 2, 12 to 13, So speak and act as though those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For the for judgment without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over justice. Or judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And I was reminded of this by Pastor Colin. And this is such a this is so good because we see God fulfill we got we see God fulfill judgment. God must hold 
hold us accountable. God must fulfill his word. He must do what he said he was going to do. If he outlines in the law that sin has a cost, that cost must be that cost must be satiated. So we see a cost. Our actions have costs. And Jesus came to pay a cost, but it's not in the same sense that we pay for things because we see what things look like when we pay for them. We have a temple system. Before Jesus comes and lives his life, we have a temple system. We have a system of offering sacrifices where man is coming to pay a cost. Offer up a lamb, offer up an animal sacrifice, an innocent spotless creature dying in our place. But this could only ever be a partial payment. And this actually ends up being a reminder of our sinfulness, our wretchedness, our depravity. And we come time and time again to the altar and offer up that little bit that we have. And the tragic part is it could only ever partially cleanse us. We can never, of our own strength, pay the cost. We can never pay it. We need somebody to come and pay it for us. We need a Savior. But why do we need a Savior? Why do, why do we need a Savior? I think the first thing I want to address is, what does it mean to reject the idea of a Savior or our need for a Savior? To reject our need for a Savior implies, I'm willing to take that full penalty, the full responsibility, the full cost of the actions of my of, of the the penalty the consequences of my sin and I'm going I'm going to do this myself. I can do it myself. It's a it's a prideful declaration that I'm going to do it myself. And we're in that declaration rejecting the very God who would come to offer us mercy. And we are invoking judgment upon ourselves and our brothers and sisters. We are invoking condemnation upon ourselves and our brothers and sisters and rejecting any opportunity for mercy due to pridefulness or due to wanting to have things our way. So the next symbol I want to move into is, um, is the cup. There are, there are two cups that I want to talk about. There's, there's, cups that are mentioned in the Old Testament that have to do with God's wrath. And in the context of sin and the collective sin of humanity, collective sin of Israel, stirring up this cup of wrath, this strong drink of wine that is to be poured out in, 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 in justice, in judgment, because this is, this is the amalgamation, the collective sin of the world it it needs to be poured out. It, it it has a cost. It has a consequence. And then we see the picture of the cup in communion. We see another cup being introduced. We see a cup of the new covenant being introduced. We see Jesus' blood sim- symbolically shown alongside with the bread. He's showing my body and my blood are going to be the substitute for this cost that righteousness justice judgment demands that there be there be a sacrifice that there be blood and Jesus is saying he's going to shed his blood for us he's going to give his body for us so we see his body broken for us we see a new cup poured out the new the new covenant In Luke 22, we see them at communion. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, "This is, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is the cup that is poured out 
This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This is the cup that is poured out for you in the new covenant of my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is on the table. So, to acknowledge our need of this new cup is to acknowledge that we need a Savior. To reject a Savior, the ironic part about it is that we're going to find a Lord somewhere else. We're going to find something else to master over us. We're going to find, we're going to find comfort in work. We're going to find comfort in money. We're going to find comfort in lust. We're going to find comfort substances, um, depending on who the person is, what they've been through their life. Um, it varies person to person, but we don't often think about that. We leave a trail. We leave a trail and a ripple effect of destruction and death behind us. We don't think about the, this cost. We don't think about the cup that we've stirred up for our brothers and sisters because we think uh, I'll just take that's my bad. I'll take the I'll take the, the fall for it if it comes to that. We don't realize people around us pay the price, and then we're going to see ultimately God Himself in the flesh took upon Himself that consequence, so that we may be set free from that very that very curse. So we see Jesus is drinking a cup the cup of wrath, and we see him pouring out a new cup, the cup of the new covenant. And to help us recognize our need, one thing the Lord put on my heart when meditating about this stuff is that sorrow has a purpose, a very real purpose. Um, The past couple weeks have been filled with... uh, agony been filled with uh just discomfort to but not just discomfort for i'm uncomfortable despair i would say is a better word and i think god used this as a tool especially despair that i can't even really reason through that i don't have the best answer for why i feel this way and i think the lord put on my heart and used this as a tool to teach me that he will, he's using despair to outline my need for him. And that without that, I might just go throughout my day. Yeah, I believe in God. Yeah, um, yeah, I believe in God. Yeah, I love Jesus. But um, how, how fervently I tune into that can sometimes be very casual, can sometimes be very lost in the mix of things. And he is showing me that these periods in my life that have this deep despair, they lead me directly to him because I'm seeing an emptiness inside myself that can only be filled with God. I cannot search for, I try, I try to put other things in the same place. I've tried to fill it with lust. I've tried to fill it with uh, caffeine, I guess. Um, my own ideas, my own routines, um, religion even. I can try to fill myself up, but I have I have a God-sized emptiness and that only he can feed that hunger, only he can quench that thirst. But there is an agony and um, I'm fooling myself to, to say that God doesn't understand that agony. Because if anyone understood that agony, it's Jesus. In the next scene, we're seeing Jesus going to be betrayed by Judas. He's going to be denied by Peter. He's going to be tried by the people of Israel, the very people that he is Lord, that he is king of. But he's, he's, he's king of all of us. But these are the people that are supposed to you know, they're waiting for their Messiah. They've been waiting for a Messiah. The scriptures tell of a, of a coming Messiah. And he's just not good enough for their idea of what that means. And it's easy to point the finger. 
it's easy to say, oh man, yeah, they, they're, they're, look what they're doing to Jesus. Look, look how they're treating him. But I think the sobering thing is when I ask myself these questions, how many times have I betrayed Jesus? How many times have I denied Jesus? How many times have I metaphorically put Jesus on trial and demanded him to prove himself to me? And that can be a heartbreaking thing of man like, I can really do this very often in in my mind and in my heart. And God doesn't owe me anything. Jesus didn't have to, to come and live his life the way he did. And we see him, when contemplating what is about to happen to him, in Luke 22, 39 to 46, I'm starting at 41, he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus understands sorrow. He understands the cup that he's about to drink. He's even pleading with the Father. He's showing what God looks like wrestling with humanity. He's showing, knowing what he has to do, asking God if there is any other way, in complete humility. He's not making demands of the Father. He's asking him if there is any other way, but nevertheless, not my will, your will be done. And these are these are teaching moments. I know for me particularly because this is this is the blueprint of how to handle my relationship with God. It might not he might not always be calling me to do the things that I'm the most thrilled about. I might not always be put into situations that are comfortable. Um nevertheless, not my will, your will be done. So we wrestle with betrayal. Another sobering idea is that Jesus didn't protect himself from betrayal. He didn't put his guard up. It's not that he didn't know it was going to happen. But he handed himself over. The only person who had the right to call everyone out to see the wrong and everything that's going on here, the perversion of justice that's going on here, he doesn't call them out. He doesn't correct them. He tells the truth. He's not checking the truth at the door. He's owning the truth. But he's not defending himself. He's not justifying himself. He's not proving himself to anybody. But he is in a way because the way he's living his life proves that he's God and proves that he is Lord, proves that he's Savior. But he doesn't have to justify himself and kind of hop to, to the whim of a worldly authority. So we see Jesus led away. He's betrayed by Judas with a kiss. This is from somebody who is the most close to him. And he doesn't resist it. And then he's led away to be tried. And on the way to being led away to be tried, he's denied by one of, one of his closest followers. He's denied three times. He foretells this denial in, in communion. And he also foretells his redemption. It says, three times before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter denies him. The rooster crows, as Pastor was talking about, we are confronted with that moment. Peter is confronted with the reality that he has just denied the Lord. And they meet eyes. Peter goes out to weep bitterly. There's key differences between Judas's betrayal and Peter's denial. And I think the main thing is who do they recognize as their authority? Who do they recognize as Lord? Where do they put their stock in their repentance? And as I think about this, Peter's face to face with Jesus as Lord and as his Messiah the whole time in his denial and his in his repentance in his contrition, it's in direct recognition as Jesus is Lord. Whereas Judas returns to the temple authorities, tries to return the money, 
There's stock being placed in the money. There's authority being recognized in, in the temple headship. And then we see their truest, we see their true colors in the way they respond to him. What does this matter to us? We see worldly authority falling short of what authority really means, even in terms of religious authority for that time. And that's sobering to think about too, because perhaps Judas could have deceived himself to really think that he's doing the right thing. You know, I'm recognizing the authority in the world. That's that's the most prominent, the most noble. Um, they've even offered a reward, or if you know, there's a reward for turning in um, this this heretic. And man, this sound, this looks like the thing I must be. It could be really easy to be deceived that this is with um, the right motivation, but. The thing is, God is warning him the whole time. He's confronted with the truth that he's betraying the Son of God. So this leads me into my next symbol, the crown. And with the crown, I want to talk about authority. Who is the real authority here? Jesus is led away to be questioned by temple authorities. Led away to be questioned. He's going to be questioned by Pilate. He's going to be questioned by... Herod is going to be given back to Pilate. The crowds are going to demand his crucifixion. The temple priests are calling like he's broken our law. He must die. But there, there are things I want us to think about as we go through this. So in Luke 22:67, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. But if I ask you, you will not answer but from now on the son of man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of god so they all said are you the son of god then and he said to them you say that i am and they said what further testimony do we need we have heard it ourselves from his own lips you see the authorities making demands asking this person they have on trial to justify himself you see them mock him sneer at him treat him with contempt condemn him really before his his trial is even over. Um, Jesus can't really do anything right by their eyes. If he confirms what they're saying, he's condemned in their eyes. If he deny, he can't deny what they're saying because that wouldn't be telling the truth. We see Jesus is representing the truth here with no shame, but also with an awareness that the truth isn't going to vindicate him or say him free in, in a material sense or, or get him off the hook for the uh, condemnation that he's walking toward. The truth is actually going to be the thing that is people are going to use to justify putting him on the cross. In Luke 23, 3 to 5, Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea and Galilee, and even in this place. John 19, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail the king of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know I find no guilt in this man. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. We see Christ is being mocked, but he's also being crowned. Man means it in a mocking way. But we know him as king. We know him as Lord. We know him as Messiah. And we see him take this crown of thorns. Jesus is becoming a curse. Jesus is taking the curse upon himself. Man was cursed to work by the sweat of his brow against the thorns and the thistles. And here we see a picture of the Son of God, the Son of Man, taking thorns into his brow, being mocked and abused and beaten. This is not a, this is not a comfortable place. And he's doing this to set us free. And then we see authority. I think that's the, that's the main thing that we have here that we're, that we're contemplating is what is authority doing? Authority is abusing. Authority is taking its leadership 
and abusing its captive. And then later on in that text, we see Pilate say to him, don't you know that I have the authority to crucify you? And in, in John 19, 11, Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. And I use this to contemplate authority because of all people making decisions in all of these scenes, we see Jesus is the only one who's not swayed by the will of another party. The only one who's not in direct, who's not in, in cahoots with uh, with another party, who's not swayed by evil or selfish ambition. Pilate, we see as an authority, he will be swayed and overcome by the crowd because he wants to release him. He finds no guilt. Pilate is face to face with the truth. He finds no guilt. He seeks to release him and the crowds are not happy with this. He's even more afraid when he's confronted with the fact that the temple priests want to have him killed because he's claiming to be the son of God. And this this is actually confronting him with the truth that this might actually be true. So as as our pastor mentioned, he then washes his hands of this guilt. And the people even say, may his blood fall on us and our children. They don't even, most likely they don't even understand the magnitude of what that means or what they're saying or what they're declaring, but, or, or what that means in terms of mercy and salvation. But we see authority truly handing its responsibility over in the exact same way we saw in the garden when Adam is casting blame upon Eve, the woman. Headship, proper headship, will cover who is in charge of. And we see that through the mercy of Christ. We see the only true headship not using his authority to give himself a higher platform, but he's humbling himself. He's putting himself, himself under those he's meant to serve and, and giving them an opportunity to be lifted up. He's putting himself under. He's taking the abuse that we all deserve that we've earned for ourselves, that this cup that we've mixed for ourselves, he's taking this cup upon himself so he can offer us a new one. So Pilate is going to offer Jesus over to be crucified. Barabbas is going to be set free. Jesus is going to be condemned. Barabbas is a representative of us. This is a criminal guilty for insurrection and murder. And we see this person released for seemingly no reason other than the cries of the people. They want to see Barabbas return and they want to see Jesus crucified. And as we contemplate the crown, we see Jesus as the true authority, willingly going in his place. Another thing that really punctuates Jesus's authority, he's not here on accident. This isn't just something that unfortunately happened to happen. Jesus is here completely on purpose. So the other thing we're here to contemplate is that there is a spiritual weight. There was a physical weight, yes. There's a physical endurance that Jesus went through. That cup of wrath had a physical implication, but far greater than the physical implication was the spiritual weight that Jesus took upon himself because of his innocence, because of his undeserving, because of his spotlessness. It's a man to never sin because of his righteousness. He didn't deserve punishment. And I don't know about y'all, but when, especially when there's something I feel like that's not my fault, I struggle so hard with wanting to justify myself. If I think I know I had nothing to do with that thing and I'm about to take the blame for something, rather than the impending thing that's to come, the idea of being innocent and being held responsible for something that I had nothing to do with or seemingly had nothing to do with, I struggle with that as a person. And then here is Jesus completely forfeiting his right to defend himself and enduring this spiritual weight. This is, And this is not just one for one. This is not just me bearing the weight of what Rob did. 
this is not a one for one. I'm going in the place of one other man. This is the sins of the entire world. That's more than all of us in this room. So this is a heavy weight and this is this can bring agony. This can bring distress. And we see Jesus in complete humility handing himself over. Their demands are granted. And we see Jesus offering himself to be condemned. And we see the meaning of amazing grace because we see humility as royalty. We see humility as nobility and we see humility as authority. We see right next to each other in all of these scenes, the true picture of something next to fallen man's idea of what this looks like. So Jesus is sentenced to a crucifixion. He's led out to the cross and he's sentenced to die with two other criminals. This brings me to my next point, the next symbol. We all know this one. It's the cross. He's let out to die. Uh, we heard him mention that Simon of Cyrene carried the cross for him for a time. There's lamenting and wailing going on behind him. And Jesus is led to the cross with these two criminals, and as he's being put up, with these two criminals in the time that he could be in the most pain and the most agony. He's got, he's had his back ripped open from the scourging. It's brutal what's happened to him up until this point. And in this moment, in these moments, he cries out, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. They cast lots and they divide his garments. And then one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to them, truly I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. I find it very interesting. Another thing that I'm that I'm meditating on is today is the day that torture is happening. Today is the day that suffering is happening. Today is the day that men are being crucified, publicly executed, shamed, scorned, condemned. And this and Jesus says to this man, Today you will be with me in paradise. His trial is but momentary. And in the greater scope of things, in the bigger picture, there is a greater glory to come and we just don't see it yet. But it would be insensitive and it would be irreverent and it would be wrong to skip the pain in front of us. We see two responses to this pain and agony. We see one man holding on to his life to the bitter end, demanding God once again, to prove himself, to justify himself, to serve him. Your God, serve me. Sounds <laughs> sounds wrong. And then we see another man realizing the truth that's right in front of him. And he's not he's in a he's in a beautiful position because he's not just an onlooker. He's in the exact same position as this man, except he knows he deserves it, and he knows the man next to him doesn't and he's completely innocent, and he's confronted in humility with his lordship, and he's able to repent and recognize Jesus as Lord in that moment, and he's able to cry out for mercy, which the Lord is good. The Lord is going to be able to give mercy. That is why he's doing what he is doing. Forgiveness is offered and this, this thief on the cross sees forgiveness because he's also realizing at this point, I think, that he's he's about to die anyways. It's ironic that the other man is hanging on to his life because they're both in a place where they've been sentenced to death. 
So we see, even though Jesus is on the cross, nails in his hands and his feet, having to push up in order to gasp for air because this would this was a punishment that was meant to be death by a slow suffocation. We see Jesus getting out the words to forgive this thief. And then we also have a cry of Eli Eli Lema Sabachthani where he's saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I think I just, I just want to honor Christ in this moment that he is not crying out and actually saying, my God, have you forsaken me? He is, through this citation of the psalmist, actually declaring, my God is with me. My God is with me. This is, this is a way that people have felt before. And if, and if we were to follow Psalm 22 all the way through to the end, we see this is one more declaration from Jesus that God is with me. I'm not alone. He will deliver me. Now from the sixth hour, there was a darkness over the land until the ninth hour. And Jesus cried out, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And 50, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. In Genesis, we see man breathed into by God. We see God breathe his breath into man to give him life. And I think it's interesting that we're observing a moment where Jesus yields up his spirit and he breathes his final breath and this is another life-giving act that we see God performing his life-giving nature with a breath. The earth shakes. The veil is torn in two. And the centurion and those who are with him, keep, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place. They were filled with awe and said, truly, this is the Son of God. Creation is even in aware, awareness and observation of what's happening with our Savior here. The creation, the earthquakes, there is a mourning that's happening, even, even observed by creation itself. Jesus has become the very curse that man has invoked for himself. And he's done this so that some may be set free, so that all may be set free. When we see Jesus on the cross, in the in the vein of the thief on the cross, we shouldn't just look at the cross as observers or onlookers. When we come to the cross, I think my challenge for everybody here today and keeping in kind of alignment with what we're going to be doing here in a moment. When we come to the cross, we're coming to the cross and we're not just seeing Jesus die separate from us. We're seeing Jesus die in our place. We're seeing Jesus die as us. Can we find ourselves in Jesus on the cross today? Can we recognize that as Jesus is dying there's, there are layers of things that are dying today. The temple system of partial sacrifices is, is, being, is being put to death. The curse is being put to death. The tree of knowledge of good and evil by which man tries to be God for himself is being put to death. Our identity with the flesh, our identity as just merely material beings, our identity as fallen man dies on that cross with Jesus Christ. As we come up here, and as the pastor will explain in, in a moment, as we come up here and we contemplate what needs to die, what, what is dying with Jesus and how can we use the sorrow that we're feeling to recognize our need?
How can we use the sorrow that we feel for our Savior and a confrontation with His very real life and His very real death to recognize our need and to come to Him in humility in the way that the second thief on the cross recognizing I'm the one who's guilty. I'm the one who's rejected you. But I'm the one who needs you. And that you are showing me you have given yourself for me. If I hope to communicate something in my closing moments is that Jesus gave himself for you. And he's not he's not ignorant of your pain or your sorrow or your mourning. If there are people among us who have lost somebody recently. Jesus knows what that feels like. Jesus' mom knows what that feels like. That's that's something that's wild to think about. And I think we have these things in here on purpose to remind us that Jesus is not ignorant of these things. He's not just saying, believe in me and, and things, things are just going to get better. He's not saying pain is going away, but I'm with you in your pain. I mean, I'm, I'm right there with you in your pain. I imagine what that thief on the cross looking right next to it. This is God with me in this exact thing. He didn't deserve it, but I do. And he's with me right now. In these moments where you could probably feel the most alone, in those moments where you feel like the most forsaken, I want to communicate that God is with you and has given his life for you so that you could have eternal life. May we come to him in humility and in repentance and realize our need through our sorrow and observe this Good Friday as good morning. May we observe in remembrance what it means for something to die, what it means for something to be buried, even. What does a proper, what does a proper burial do for the mourning process for those who have lost a loved one. Jesus is given a king's burial. He's adorned with ointments. He's adorned with ointments and spices, and it ends with the rest. I think Jesus is urging us to come and rest in him. If we try to do this on our own, if we hang on to our lives, we will lose it. If we try to do this on our own and we cling to our arrogance, we cling to our pride, there is no rest in that. If we can honor what Jesus is asking of us in our hearts, it might be something different for every single person. We can come to him. We can give it to him. We can see it nailed to that cross. We can see it buried. We can see a sense of finality and closure. And we can be prepared to receive newness of life. When something is buried, what goes into the ground? Just something physical? When, when a, and then I'll ask, how is a tree planted? A seed has to go into the ground. And we have the outer casing has to come off that seed for new life to spring. We saw Jesus shedding his very flesh. We see the temple torn in two. We see the veil from heaven to earth being split so that we have a door to come to. And I ask, I also ask us, let us merely not just come to the cross and stop there. Let us find ourselves in Jesus. Let's participate in the cross. Let's see the end of the curse and the beginning of something new in that moment. And let us mourn with each other if God is showing us we're not alone, let's let's demonstrate that. Let's be there for each other. When somebody is mourning, it can be sometimes very condescending to come at them from a higher place and, and question why why they're feeling what they're feeling and, and Jesus is showing us what it looks like to come to somebody's level, experience pain on their behalf, resonate with their sorrow go through their sorrow with them, but also to carry on through for a greater hope and a greater glory. So with that, I want to close my time in, 
in prayer with y'all. I want to thank y'all for being patient. There was a lot that the Lord put on my heart, but I think the main message is that God is able to bring something good out of the morning. Lord, we come to you in humility. We recognize our need for you. If we keep trying to do this on our own, we fall short every time. We recognize you as Lord because you came to live a life that we could not live. You showed us that you have a heart for those who are suffering, those who are in agony. And this glorifies the Father undeniably. You are glorifying the Father. You're glorifying the Son. And as we'll see with Easter, you're glorifying the Holy Spirit through your life, death, sacrifice, and then what is to come. Lord, help us to recognize our need. Help us to examine ourselves and and to find what needs to die with you on that cross. Help us to receive the mercy that you have offered us, to receive your blood, to be washed clean by your blood, to receive newness of life, and we invite in that healing. And you're showing us that you're showing us that the healing might be laced into that sorrow and that agony. So let us not bury it deep within. Let us let us take it on full on in the way that you did and go through this with you so that we may actually experience true healing and true transformation and true renewal. Thank you for bringing us here together in fellowship. Help us to comfort each other, Lord. If we have brothers and sisters who are going through hard times, help us love in the most selfless kind of love. Help us love in a sacrificial, life-giving spirit way and understand that all of that love undeniably comes from you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org.